So to our north, the city of Seattle is, is also known as the Emerald City because of its lush environment and year-round evergreen trees, right? Uh, and it has been one of the fastest-growing cities in the country for several years. People have been flocking to it from all over the country for the past decade, and I suppose I am among those. About five years ago, I made my own way up to the Pacific Northwest and that kind of thing. Now, the draw uh, for the city of, of Seattle and the Pacific Northwest in general may very well be you know, an economic draw in some ways with the booming tech job market and, and industry and thing like that. Seattle Times recently reported that Amazon has about 37,000 job listings right now. 37,000 jobs that, that are waiting to be filled, right? Um, so, so that could be one draw of bringing people in. The draw could also be cultural, right? The, the U.S. is increasingly becoming uh, concentrated in these urban centers. More than 80% of the population of the U.S. is urban, uh, people living in cities, right? And, and so th this could be another one of the, the draws, one of the reasons, but I think at least one of the reasons for Seattle and the Pacific Northwest's growth uh, is the environment. People love the beauty of, well, Emerald City, right? I mean, that was certainly one of the big draws for me that brought me up here. The mountains and the water and the forests are all such a beautiful environment to live in. I mean, on, on a day like today, whenever the, the clouds break uh, a little bit and there's that gleam of sunshine, it's incredible to, to witness the, the beauty and the, the green and, and that kind of things. And, and this has been true for, for all of human history. Uh, People have been drawn to, to beautiful, lush places, perhaps less for aesthetic purposes in the past as much as for practical ones, because civilizations have always grown up in places near the water, uh, because that's where food can be grown. That's where life can be sustained. And this has always been true for human history, that the great civilizations spring up where there is water, where there is life. People dwell together in places that are rich with natural resources. And so, it's worth piquing some curiosity. It's certainly strange when at some point in history there began to be a movement of people who left this great ideal environment of, of city living and, and lush thriving places to instead go out and be alone in the wilderness. One of the first of these people is a guy known as Anthony the Great. In the late third century, he headed out to live a solitary life in the Egyptian desert where he devoted himself to prayer. And the story goes that Anthony did not only encounter God in the wilderness, but also faced multitudes of demons who he would wrestle with through the night. There's actually a famous painting attributed to Michelangelo where Anthony is in the wilderness surrounded by and wrestling with a bunch of scary-looking goblin demon-type creatures. It is the stuff of nightmares. If you ever look it up, it's, it's a crazy image, probably... 
Not accurate, but imagination, right, is, is great. But these stories of Anthony in the wilderness began to spread. And even though he had left civilization to find solitude, people would come to the wilderness in search of him, to find him and, and seek out some measure of spiritual wisdom from Anthony, the great. And by the fourth century, there was a movement of people who were leaving cities and heading out for the wilderness. And these were the first Christian monks, the first Christian monastics. That actually comes from the Greek word monos, meaning singular or solitary. And so in Christian history, these folks came to be known as the desert mothers and fathers. They left their cities because although civilization was rich, in resources, they felt that it was lacking in God. And so they went out to the desert to encounter God in the wilderness. And this idea might seem kind of radical and extreme to most of us. I mean, after all, we are among those 80% of people living in an urban area, right? We, we are some of those. But, but there is actually a, a biblical precedent for this idea. There are countless stories throughout scripture of people encountering God in the wilderness. And chief among these stories is the story of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to read the opening sort of prologue, the opening section of Mark's gospel. And Mark doesn't waste a word getting to the point of what he's writing about. However, as we read this, it is not only what he writes that's important, but I think also how he writes it that shows us something absolutely essential about the gospel. And so Mark chapter 1, let's read this, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to see him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. 
And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news that we read about and hear. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, as I mentioned, Mark doesn't waste a word getting to the point. He opens his story by immediately telling you what and who he's talking about. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Mark doesn't waste words because he doesn't actually have very many words to waste. All right, Mark's story of Jesus, it is very similar to Matthew's and Luke's, but it is significantly shorter than both of them. I mean, the events that we just read about in 15 verses take place over the course of two full chapters in Matthew and in Luke, right? So Mark is just booking it. He does not waste a word. He is moving right through the story. But though Mark is concise. He is not careless. He has very intentionally crafted his story. And this opening prologue that we've just read is, I think, literarily incredible. And that's what I want to show you this morning. It's not just what he says, but how he says it that is vital to understanding it. So one of the ways that Mark emphasizes his point is repetition. There are these words and phrases that he will use again and again throughout his gospel to get his point across. And this is something that we don't even need to look throughout his gospel to notice. We have already seen it in these opening verses. All right, so in verse 1, he begins the beginning of the good news of Jesus. And then at the end, in verse 14, he repeats, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news, saying the kingdom of heaven has come near, repent and believe in the good news. Do you hear the repetition? Good news, good news, good news. So what is this story about? Good news. The story is about good news. This is the beginning of the good news. Jesus came proclaiming good news. Repent and believe good news. This is what the story is all about. Something new is happening, and it's good. Now, by the way, this is actually where we get our English word gospel. 
All right. Well, in Old English, the phrase God spiel meant good story. Right, we still use that word spiel from time to time. You know, someone gives you their spiel or whatever. And it just means good story. And that becomes our modern word gospel, God spiel. And in Greek, this word is euangelion. And it means the same thing. You means good, as in euphoria, right? And angelion means message or story as in angels who are God's messengers. All right? And so this is where we get our English word evangelism. And so as we're thinking about all of these different words and where they come from, to be an evangelist literally means to be a good storyteller. To be uh, evangelical is to be a good storyteller. How I wish that were true, right? I mean... I'd love for us to be people who reclaim this, to be people who actually become these good storytellers, proclaimers of this good story. Evangelism is not about convincing people of four spiritual laws or walking them through five steps or something. It is about telling them the good story of Jesus. And ultimately for us, it is about living in that good story, becoming part of it. And so what is this good story? Well, I think many of us have grown accustomed to hearing something like, the good news is that Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven. But I want you to hear how Jesus tells the good story. Listen, in verse 15, he says, it's finally time. The kingdom of God has come near. Turn and trust this good news. You see, we've often been told that the good news is about us going to heaven. But when Jesus tells it, it sounds a lot more like heaven coming to us. That's a different story. we got to pay attention to what it is that Jesus is telling. This is the good news, that the kingdom of God has come near. That it is coming near. This is the good story, not only to hear, but to live in. This kingdom is something that we participate in. The kingdom is near. This is the beginning of the good news. Jesus came proclaiming the good news. So repent and believe the good news. This is what Mark's story is all about. And he makes that clear by repeating this over and over and over. Now, how is it that God's kingdom has come near? Well, that's the very next thing that he goes on to say in, in verse 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. The kingdom of God is near because the Son of God has arrived. Son of God. 
This is another one of these phrases that gets repeated not only in our passage, but throughout the Gospel of Mark. It's here in the opening line, and we see it again right in the middle of the prologue as Jesus comes up out of the water from his baptism in verse 11. A voice came from heaven saying, You are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So what is Mark's story about? Well, it's about good news. And who is it about? Jesus. And who exactly is he? He is the son of of God. Now, what in the world does that mean? What exactly does that mean? I mean, the Son of God is this phrase that we kind of take for granted in church. We've heard it. We might have grown up hearing it. But what does it actually mean? I mean, when Mark says that Jesus is God's Son, what is he saying about Jesus? To understand this, we need to get into the mindset of the ancient world. I think there's a couple of things that are going on in this phrase, son of God. First, there's the context of the the ancient Roman culture, the ancient Roman empire, all right? In the century before Jesus, you have Julius Caesar, who ruled in Rome, and toward the end of his life, the Roman Senate recognized him as divinity. They said, Julius Caesar, he is God. They called him God, but as his rule came to an end, his adopted son, Augustus Caesar, took his place. And as the divine Julius Caesar's adopted son, one of Augustus's favorite titles for himself was Divi Filius, divine son. Augustus loved to call himself the son of God. And so this language was familiar in the first century. It was regularly used throughout the Roman Empire to denote power, rule, and authority. And so when Mark calls Jesus the son of God, he is saying that Jesus, not Caesar, has the power to rule and the authority to rule. Jesus, not Caesar, is the one who brings about God's kingdom. So this is one of the contexts that Mark is is speaking into here. But we also need to consider the Jewish context that Jesus was in. Because Mark is actually saying quite a lot more than just Jesus has authority to rule. All right, so... So here's the the Jewish context of this phrase, son of God. Throughout the New Testament, uh, we encounter various different kinds of of spiritual beings. Uh, And they're typically referred to as either angels or, or demons, right? Angels are those who are sent by God, and demons are the ones who are opposed to God. But in the Old Testament, we also encounter some spiritual beings, but they have a different title. The spiritual beings in the Old Testament, are sometimes referred to as sons of God. They're these, these spiritual beings that exist and, 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 and do things. This is one of the, the things that's going on here. So when Mark calls Jesus son of God, he's tapping into this tradition of spiritual beings that have always existed. But 
the gospel writers make something incredibly clear. When they refer to Jesus, they consistently declare that he is not merely a son of God. He is the son of God. Jesus is not merely a great spiritual being who happens to be on earth for a little while. Rather, Jesus is God himself in the flesh, dwelling among us. That is why Mark shows us the voice declaring to Jesus, you are my son, the beloved. And in the Gospel of John, this is made even more clear that Jesus is not merely a son of God, but the only begotten son of God. The word who was God and is God has now become flesh to dwell among us. So what does Mark mean when he says that Jesus is the son of God? Well, he means a lot. He's saying that Jesus is not only a great human with the power to rule instead of Caesar. He's also not only saying that Jesus is some spiritual being. Rather, Mark is saying that Jesus is God himself in the flesh, establishing the rule of the kingdom of God. So in these first few verses, Mark has established by repetition these themes of what his story is about, the good news, and who his story is about, Jesus, the Son of God. But there's another word that finds some repetition in these opening verses. And it is absolutely crucial that we hear this word in order to understand the story that Mark is telling. And that word is the word wilderness. Wilderness. After that opening line, Mark quotes from Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Then in verse 4, he says, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness. And then again, down in verse 12, after Jesus' baptism, he says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So why all of this wilderness talk? Well, the story that Mark tells is good news. All right, he's already made that clear. And the story is about the very Son of God. He has made that clear as well. But this good news from God is not going to be all roses and daffodils and butterflies. The lifeless terrain of the wilderness will be an essential component of this story. So what's important for us to know about the wilderness? Well, first, we see that the wilderness is a place where we are prepared for God. 
as a place of preparation for God. It's from the wilderness that a voice cries out, prepare the way of the Lord. You see, I think there was some wisdom in those ancient desert mothers and fathers, right? Because everyday life is filled with constant noise, constant busyness. It's filled with anxiety and distraction. Sometimes it's necessary to get away. Sometimes it's necessary to get away from all of that. It's necessary to make space for silence, for solitude, so that we might actually prepare ourselves for God. And I think for for us, living in this world of constant busyness and commotion, silence and solitude may feel kind of like a luxury. But in ancient times, the wilderness was a place of desperation, a place of absolute desperation. Remember Hagar, who ran into the wilderness away from Abraham and Sarah, who had abused her? Or remember Moses, who ran away to the wilderness after taking revenge on an Egyptian who he saw abusing his people, and he ran for his life? Or remember Elijah, who ran away into the wilderness whenever Jezebel was seeking to have him killed? Each one of these ran into the wilderness in desperation. But every single one of them encountered God there. Hagar was visited by the God who sees me. She's the first person in Scripture to actually give a name to God. The God who sees me. Right? Moses, in the wilderness, stumbles into the burning bush where God promises to rescue his people. And then Elijah, while he's out in the wilderness, hears this still, small voice speaking to him. The wilderness is a place of desperation, but it is also a place to encounter God. And I think we may think of silence and solitude as a luxury but I think we need to begin to see ourselves as actually quite desperate for it. We are in deep, deep need of God. And so the question is, are you desperate enough to go out to the wilderness for him? Are you desperate enough to run into places of discomfort that feel lifeless? So, The wilderness is this place that prepares us for God. It is also a place where we not only encounter God, but also a place where we often face darkness. Jesus went to the wilderness. He was sent by the Spirit, right? But while he was there, verse 13 tells us that he was also tempted by Satan. So the story of Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days here, it it mirrors the story of Israel out in the wilderness for 40 years. And Israel, like Jesus, was constantly tempted. 
And they constantly failed time and time again during their years in the wilderness. They complain to Moses. They complain to God. They turn away from the promised land and actually begin to head back to Egypt. Makes no sense, right? But this is what they do. It's a mess. And yet, I think we often experience the very same thing in the wilderness. We may set aside some time of solitude to be quiet with God, but it's not long before the darkness begins to creep up. It's not long before our mind begins to race, before temptations abound, before all of our doubts and questions start rising up. Before in that silence we begin to feel some of the guilt and shame of our own sins and failures. I think this is one of the reasons why we often avoid being quiet and being still. By keeping ourselves busy, we we try to numb ourselves to the darkness. We try to avoid it, and maybe we do that successfully. But we risk missing the voice of God. And here's the point of the story. Jesus went into the wilderness, and he experienced all of those same temptations and trials But he emerged victorious. Jesus did what God's people could not do. But that doesn't mean that we're exempt from the wilderness. It just means that we are not alone in it. When we face the darkness, we do so with Jesus by our side. So the wilderness is a place of preparation for God, a place of facing the darkness, but it is also the essential place where we receive the blessing of God. And this is what Mark makes incredibly clear. Remember I said it's not only what Mark says, but how he says it that matters. We've already seen this with his repetition of words and phrases, but there is also a structure to the way that he says all of this in these first 15 verses. This this, uh, part that we've read, this passage that we've read, is in the literary form of something called a chiasm. All right, that's from the Greek word for the letter X. And an X is a word that's it's like a mirror, right? It's a mirror of itself. And that's the structure that this had. It's, it's like this. Have you ever heard a song where, you know, there was that first line and then there's the verses and the choruses. And then at the end of the song, you have that same line again, right? And it's this very poetic way of making a point. Well, that is what Mark does here. That is what Mark is up to here. Verse 1 and 15 are this tag that highlights the good news. And then verse 14 and 12 highlight the wilderness. And then right in the center of the whole thing is Jesus' baptism and the voice of God's blessing. So the very shape of these 15 verses tells us something Essential. The good news is this 
journeying through the wilderness for God's blessing. John comes from the wilderness. Jesus goes to the wilderness. But right at the heart is the scene of baptism and blessing. And this is absolutely essential for Mark. If we look at it more closely, verse 10, as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart. And a voice declares, you are my son. And all of this that happens here in this part of Mark happens again at the end of Mark. So if you want to look at it, Mark 15, verse 37, here Jesus is not in the wilderness, but on the cross, another lifeless place. But here, there's once more the surprise of a blessing. Mark 15, 37, Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And now when the centurion saw that it was this way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. Look at what's happening here. In the wilderness baptism, Jesus came up from the water and the heavens were torn apart. Here, on the cross, Jesus breathes his last in the temple curtain is torn in two. In the wilderness, baptism, a voice declares, you are my beloved son. And here, on the cross, a centurion of all people looks upon Jesus' dying breath and says, truly, this man was God's son. This is the point of the gospel of Mark. There is good news of God's Son, but it's found in the wilderness. There is good news of God's Son, but it's found upon the cross. There's, there's a song uh, by an artist that I like that has this recurring line throughout it. I think we're all lost until we've walked in the wilderness. That's the point of Mark. We're all lost until we've walked in the wilderness. That's the call of this good news. So this next Wednesday, Christians around the world will enter into the season of Lent. And it's the season of walking in the wilderness with Jesus. And many take it upon themselves during this season to fast from something like Jesus did in the wilderness. Or many will make a special effort to devote themselves more fully to prayer during this season, like those wilderness monks did. Whatever the practice might look like during the season of Lent, as we walk through the wilderness, it is a season of preparing for God and of facing the darkness, but it is also a season of God's blessing. And so I want to invite all of you 
into this wilderness journey together over these next 40-some-odd days. And like we have before, uh, there's a resource available of a, of a little booklet. Uh, you can grab one out there. Some of you have already seen it and grabbed one on your way in. Uh, if not, grab one on your way out. Uh, this is filled with daily scripture readings for this season, leading up to Good Friday, leading up to Easter. Daily scripture readings and reflections. I hope this can be a way to journey with Jesus in the wilderness blessing of God. So as we enter this season together, I want you to hear this one thing. There is blessing for you in the wilderness. There is blessing for you in the wilderness. Now, some of you may feel like you're in a wilderness season already. You've, you're filled with doubt, with worry, with anxiety, with sin, with shame, with sickness. Hear this. There is blessing for you in the wilderness. If that's where you are, there's blessing to be found there. But then there are others who maybe feel like life is, is pretty blessed right now. You feel good, you feel comfortable and happy, and I want you to hear the very same thing. There is blessing for you, but it's in the wilderness. And so this season is an invitation to discomfort. It's an invitation to hard things. It is an invitation to facing the darkness but it's an invitation to blessing. There is blessing for you in the wilderness. May we find it as we find God. Amen.